Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the If You Mark in Your Bible podcast. This podcast is associated with the Scattered Abroad Network. So be sure to like, share, and subscribe and check out the episode notes below for contact information, including websites and where we can be found on social media. Again, thank you for your support and let's begin our Bible study. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the If You Mark in Your Bible podcast. My name is Josh, and we are continuing our study of the prologue John, uh, of John, the, the Apostle John in his gospel account of John. Uh, today we're going to look at verses 14 through 18, and he's done such a masterful job the previous two episodes. Uh, we're going to have Drew uh, look at this portion with us again. Drew, again, just for those uh, from a remembrance standpoint, is the preacher at the Quitman Church of Christ in Quitman, Georgia, as well as the host of the Weathering the Storm podcast, which is on the Scattered Abroad Network. He uh, is comes on Thursday mornings uh, on that Scattered Abroad Network. Uh, so if you are listening to this now, you have a new episode that came out yesterday because this episode or this podcast comes out on Friday, uh, the sister podcast weather storm and the others i would highly recommend uh, but i definitely recommend drew uh, and his uh, podcast as well uh, and as you notice we've just started 2024 bringing on uh, a fellow host from the scattered abroad network uh, and so the next episodes uh, for the foreseeable future uh, are going to be uh, fellow hosts from that that network uh, we're honored uh, here to be a part of that that great work i remember when it started uh, michael and caleb uh, brought it up and how much has grown since uh, the time that they started it and uh, excited to be a part of this effort and uh, what it's doing to expand the borders of the kingdom so uh, appreciate that appreciate you guys for listening like share subscribe uh, share this with your friends uh, and so forth but we also appreciate the support that all y'all have shown as well. So as mentioned earlier, we are going to look at verses 14 through 18 as far as John's prologue. Uh, we looked in the first part of this three-part series at the first five verses, made the point that the eternal word came into the world that he created. Uh, he was the light of the world, the life of the world, and the word which communicated God to humanity. Last episode, we looked at verses 6 through 13. We made mention of how John does a masterful job of putting John the Baptist exactly where he deserves to be, uh, not on the same plane with Christ, but as Matthew 11, verse 11 says, the greatest of all born of women. And I think John uh, does in this gospel account a great job of, uh, of showing John the Baptist as he is. Uh, and then he does an even greater job, in my opinion, of showing Jesus as the true light, the source of light. Uh, his gospel, his story, his mission uh, is the true means of salvation for all humanity. And we made the point that if you do not know Jesus because you choose not to know Jesus, if you are not saved uh, because of Jesus, because you choose not to be saved. And, and John would point that out. He came to his own, and his own received him not uh, that was their choice. It wasn't uh, because they were incapable of receiving him. It's because they chose not to receive him. Uh, and so we're going to pick up in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only, as the only son or only begotten son of the Father, full of grace and truth. What do you have there, Drew? 
thought is the fact that the word takes us back to verses one through three. Uh, we, you know, we opened up with that. In the beginning was the word. Well, this, of course, is who John is talking about and referring to. But one thing that's interesting when you read this is look at the sentence without the words in parentheses. It says, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. That's a packed statement about Jesus. But noticing that he was made flesh, I just think that's something you can't miss. We mentioned the incarnation here. In the first century, they had a problem with that. There were a lot of people that said, how in the world is that possible? Well, John says, here's exactly what happened. Uh, we, we know from verses 1 through 3, the Word was in the beginning with God, but then the statement, the Word was God. What does this mean then? It means that God took on flesh. That's what it means. Uh, and the Greek word here for dwelt means literally tabernacle. So he, he tabernacled among us. Now, we know that language from the Old Testament. This is the place where God dwelt. Here's God who has come to this earth. Uh, and so the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And then that statement, full of grace and truth, is, of course, the fact that Jesus was a man of compassion. The kindness, the goodness, the love of God is seen through Christ to the world. Uh, we've mentioned that in our last episode. You want to see God, look, look at his son. Look at the only begotten, the monogenes of the Father. And that's, that's key there. Uh, but then when you dive into what's in parentheses here, we beheld his glory. That, of course, could be a reference to the Mount of Transfiguration. John was there, Matthew 17, 1 through 5. He saw that. He heard the voice that came down from heaven. But then the key word in this entire verse is the word glory. And this takes us to Ephesians chapter 1. I just want to highlight this. I credit your dad for this, actually. I've got this written in my notes. I wrote it down during a break in that class because he was teaching us John. And once he figured out how to get the iPad up there and write his notes, he thought that was the coolest thing. So he said, we're going to talk about this for a minute. So I've got this, and it talks about the, the, the will of God, the glory of God, the grace of God, all from Ephesians chapter 1. I want to connect that real quick. What's being said in verse 14? So if you mark in your Bible, if you're listening to this and you want to take a note for, by verse 14, the will of God is Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 5, verse 9, and verse 11. There you have his will. This is according to the will of God, the good pleasure of his will. Paul uses that language. Then you have the glory and the grace of God. This is Ephesians 1, verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14. So just think about how this connects to John 1, 14. So in verse 6, it talks about having predestinated us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Here's the point. That doesn't happen if the word doesn't take on flesh. We don't have one who understands us. We don't have one who can sympathize with us, the Hebrews writer would say. We don't have one who can take away the sin of the world. But because God took on flesh and dwelt among us, there's the glory of God on display. And then you drop down to verse 12. It says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. How do we do that? Verse 13, the gospel of your salvation. Of course, we trusted, we obeyed after we heard. And then verse 14, it says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, talking about the Holy Spirit, until the redemption of the purchased possession. And here's that phrase again, to the praise of his glory. 
So the key of verse 14 is this is all to the glory of God. God, the second person of the Godhead, stepped out of heaven. He became poor that we could become rich, made flesh, dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. All these wonderful things that are said about him. But ultimately, it's to the glory of God. And so thinking about what he did for us, we ought to stand in awe of him. And we ought to respond by faithful obedience because the word God himself was made flesh. Philippians 2, 6 through 8, he humbled himself. This is the purpose for why he was in the flesh. So John is stating the fact of it, but also the why, also the purpose. And again, that, sh that, should, that should cause us to respond in faithful obedience. Excellent. And that is superb. Uh, and I know Ephesians is one of his favorite books, so uh, yeah. it, it doesn't doesn't surprise me he's going to find a way to draw everything he can to Ephesians <laughs> as possible. Um, but but came there is uh, a specific word in the Greek. Uh, it's not born. Uh, yeah. You and I uh, do not become the way this becomes, uh, if that makes sense. You and I uh, are born, everyone outside of Adam and Eve uh, that's walked the face of this earth, uh, came into existence when they were conceived when 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 you were uh when when you became a individual within your mother to grow and develop through the the trimesters of birth uh that's when you came into existence the word here became is the one is talking about one who changes state so it's 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 one who exists in this state in a heavenly deistic state becoming a human not being born and coming into existence as a human but god himself becoming a human which we mentioned earlier and i like the fact that you pointed out that uh dwelt there literally means tabernacle uh, he tabernacled among us and and i'm reminded of the tabernacle on the day of atonement when uh the high priest would go into the most holy place and from heaven would come down the Shekinah glory of God. And I think this word is intentional because you have the glory of God, the Son of God, God himself coming down from heaven uh, to, to be among man here on earth, the same way that the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament came down the Day of Atonement uh, and sat upon the mercy seat of, of the Ark of the Covenant. So uh, very intentional there. Uh, as far as that language, I, I love, I'm not going to add anything to the glory because you summed it up perfectly. Uh, the only thing else I did, uh, and I am going to put what you wrote in my Bible, uh, but I've underlined full of grace and truth. Uh, and I drew uh, an arrow uh, just because of the spacing, but I put Exodus 34, 6 and 7 uh, in just the note where God passed before Moses. And God and, and Moses pleads that he asked God, can you see, can I see you? Uh, and God tells him, you can't see me face to face or else you'll die, but I'll show you essentially the back uh, of God. Uh, so he puts him in the cleft of the rock. He passes by him and he says these things about him. God describes himself and you have slow to anger, full of steadfast love, gracious and merciful uh, and faithful and, and truthful. Uh, and I think that this phrase full of grace and truth is a synecdoche of everything that God mentions there in, in verses uh, 6 and 7 of Exodus 34. And, and I just want to capture what John, I believe, is doing in this verse here. Uh, I think he's bringing to light the fact, because 
Uh, you see throughout, uh, you know, Jesus said, and no man has ever seen God. Uh, you look in, in Genesis, I believe it's 32, when Jacob says, I have seen God, but he saw him in a theophanistic form. Uh, Moses saw God, uh, it, it would appear at least what he's capable of seeing of God himself, not in a, in a different form. <clears throat> and I think what John is doing here in verse 14 is relishing, because if you, let me backtrack just a hair, and if you're a Jew like John, and you know the old law, <clears throat> uh, like John uh, probably did to a degree, I think Moses seeing God, on Mount Sinai is probably one of those you and I probably have instances in the Bible. I know John six, you mentioned last episode. I, if I'm, I hope there's something in heaven where we can like, we can witness those events in the Bible. Maybe, maybe not. But if I could witness an event in the Bible, I think I would witness first and foremost, the end of chapter six, when Peter looks at him and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. For some reason, I just want to see, I would love to see that played out in reality. Uh, and so if you're a Jew in the first century who who, who lived uh, under the old law, you knew this account of Moses. I think this was at the top of some people's list. I would want to see what Moses saw in the cleft of, the, of Mount Sinai. And I think John here is relishing in the fact that I, that we, uh, him uh, and specifically him james and peter but also the 12 and even just those uh, disciples and those who were able from humanity to witness it we got to witness the equivalent of that in watching jesus live his life here on earth and 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 he's he's not taking that for granted how special it is that he was chosen to be in a part of time that got to witness God's glory through the sun as he walked here on earth. Uh, and, and I mean, this is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible yeah. uh, for that reason, that, that, that God himself came and spent time with humanity. Uh, and, and you just take a moment uh, just on reflection on what that provides for us. Uh, you mentioned Ephesians 4.15 and 16 and and you look at it from the standpoint of in the old law the shekinah glory came down to to earth to be among men but because jesus came to earth and successfully completed his mission of dying and being resurrected and then he ascends back into heaven now you and i through prayer can leave this earth from a spiritual standpoint and go before the throne of grace of god uh and it's, I mean, the reason is because of verse 14, because God, because God himself came to us. Now we humanity has the opportunity to go to God. So uh, a beautiful verse. One of my favorites, as mentioned, do you have anything else on that one? No, there's like you said, that's such a packed passage. We could spend the whole time on that one verse for sure. But just, just emphasizing the fact how special Jesus is and how special he ought to be to us. He was willing to do this for us. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and and the thought there and dwelt is pitching a tent, pitching the tabernacle. <clears throat> this is different from theophany in the Old Testament when he appeared uh, in human form temporarily to communicate with man, and then went back to heaven. Here he 
he came into the world the way that you and I would via, uh, granted his conception was miraculous, uh, unique, uh, compared to anyone else, but his birth was, was the way that you and I were. He grew for nine months within Mary and he was born the same way we were. And he had to leave this earth from a death perspective. He, he faced death the same way you and I would face death. Uh, and then he resurrected and, and, and so, um, I want to draw that comparison. There's a more of a permanency to that word dwelt than we see Christ throughout the Old Testament. So we want to draw that distinction between the incarnation and theophany. Uh, but anyway, moving on to verse 15, it says, John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. What do you have there? The first thought is, is that, you know, preferred King James says the ESV ranks like you just said. The other day I was walking, try to walk every morning, and I would just listen to the prologue over and over and over again. And I had the ESV listening, and that that struck me. And you picture John saying this, and I, I did a word study on this because we go back to bear witness. We talked about that in the previous episode, what that means. But then the word cry, and this is from A. T. Robertson's word pictures. Says the Greek word here translated "crieth" is an old verb for loud crying, repeated in dramatic form again for emphasis, recalling the wonderful voice in the wilderness, which the beloved disciple can still hear echoing through the years. I thought that was pretty great the way he worded that. It's as if, as John writes this, he can hear this, and the whole time he's writing about the one who's already come, who's already done the things you just mentioned. He's already come and lived. We, we beheld his glory, tabernacled among us. He's died on the cross. He's resurrected. He's at the right hand of God. But as John's writing this, he's reflecting back on what John the Immerser did, bearing witness of him. But again, it goes back to the humility of John, the purpose of, of, of his ministry and his role. This, was, this is the one I was talking about. He who comes after me is preferred before me. But the people couldn't grasp what John was saying. In their minds, like, what do you mean he's he who comes after me is before me. What does that even mean? He understood. Okay, he's coming after me from a physical standpoint. You're going to see him coming. I'm six months older. But he recognized the fact that Jesus is 100% deity and 100% man. Mm-hmm. And that's what's brought out. That's what jumps out to me in verse 15 is John was speaking on a plane that was, that was higher than people were hearing. Uh, it reminds us of Nicodemus in John 3. How can a man be born again? Really, Jesus is trying to elevate the way people think. And John was doing the same thing. They weren't, they weren't grasping that. They weren't understanding that. And yet, John was bearing witness of this fact. Right. And so I think uh, verse 15 is, is uh, that's an important verse. As John kind of, he, he goes in and out with the work of John the Immerser. Here's Jesus. Here's the glory, the incarnation in verse 14. And it kind of helps us to better understand verse 14 when we read verse 15. Right. How does he who is coming after me preferred before me because of verse 14. That's why, because it's right. deity. So I think that's the emphasis of verse 15. 100%. Cried out <clears throat> is perfect, active, indicative, which means nothing in, uh, to anyone except for the fact that when you use that in the Greek, it's something that has a, a it's something that happened in the past that has a definite beginning and a definite ending, but the results of that action uh, continue on. Uh, and then when you go backwards to bore witness, that's in the present active indicative, which means that it continues as John's writing it. He's saying it continues at that point 
And as you and I read it today, it means that it continues today. John the Baptist, though he's not with us anymore, still continues through the books of Holy Writ and through his former disciple, the Apostle John, continues to bear witness about Jesus. And we did it. You, If you didn't catch the last episode, I would encourage you to go back to the last episode and listen to the discussion about John the Baptist, the type of person he was from the standpoint. Drew made a wonderful point in the last episode where John, uh, the things John could have said about himself. He had a, he had a large following. I'm reminded of John chapter four, when Jesus, when the, after Jesus speaks with the woman at the well and she goes in to tell her kinsmen about the Messiah and Jesus tells his disciples, lift up your eyes for the white or for the fields are white unto harvest. Uh, and then, and I, and I think Jesus was pointing at a crowd of Samaritans coming to him, uh, to hear him speak led by this woman. And he makes the point there that, that those, uh, who have sowed, you're, you're picking up in the work. This isn't a work that you're starting. This is a work that's already been started and that you're picking up. Well, I believe that work, the one, the ones that he's talking about there who have started the work were John the Baptist and his disciples. You go to verse 25 of John chapter four. She tells him, I know Messiah has come and he, and, and when he does, he will teach us all things. Well, where does she learn that? She learned that, I believe, from John the Baptist, or at least from one of his disciples, from the message he was he was proclaiming. And so Jesus goes into Samaria, and she already has a clue. But she doesn't know he is the Messiah, but she knows the Messiah is coming, and that's because of what John did uh, here. And so he bore witness in that sense, even though he continued to bear witness. Uh, he continues to bear witness in the time of John. He continues to bear witness uh, to us today. Also, uh, I, I thought that was a interesting phrase at the end where he says, he, uh, he who comes after me, talking about uh, Jesus coming into this earth after John the Baptist, about six months, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, ranks before me. In other words, he's mightier than I am. And then that word, uh, and I circled it because it stood out to me, because he was before me. Why does he rank above me? Because he was before me, because he's eternal. Uh, And I just put this note next to that. Who was he not before? Talking about Christ. Who who did he not come before? Uh, And and if we're going to, and the point being is no one. Everything you and I know apart from the Godhead is finite in nature. Uh, and that's why, you know, the psalmist would say the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmness show with his handiwork. Everything. God is worthy of everything showing praise unto him. And and I think the eternal nature of Jesus and the Godhead is something we we kind of take for granted at times, maybe. Uh, we, we, we understand that he's eternal. We understand there's no beginning, no end. We understand that as finite beings, we cannot wrap our head around what that is. We can we can know it from a knowledge standpoint, but not really from an experience standpoint because we're bound by time, like you mentioned uh, earlier. But but the point being is is when we step back and really think about it, there is nothing that you and I know, nothing that you and I experience. There's no knowledge you and I have about anything else other than God that is eternal, that has no beginning and no end. Everything else is finite. And so I think there's a uniqueness about God. There's a, there's a lot more about God that, that doesn't compare to humanity. But here, John the Baptist uh, and John is, is reflecting on it. 
is saying that the, the existence of Jesus before any of us, just that fact alone is worthy of him ranking above above me and anything else. And, and so uh, I, I, I just for some reason, I thought that was I wrote a paper in my master's in John, uh, my master's class of John on the eternality of Jesus through John. And it's a it's a it's a fulfilling, wonderful study. Uh, and and part of that paper was examining how other philosophies view Jesus. And it appears that they want to discount Jesus. And one of the ways that they discount Jesus is making him a human being, making him a finite being. He was born to Mary denying the virgin birth some would even say well he was born of a virgin but that's because god god deemed him to be born of a virgin but making the point that he came into existence when he came into existence in the womb of mary and i think john here uh mimicking the words of john the baptist is combating any of that thought this is the eternal god who walked among us he's not a good person like you said c.s lewis you can't take him as a good person because when you look at the things that jesus said he told you to deny mother and father, leave your family, leave your possessions and all that and dedicate your life to him because he is the eternal one, because he is Jehovah. If he's lying in that instance, look at what he did. If you and I went out and told somebody to give up all your possessions, leave your family, uh, leave your job and, and follow after me, do exactly what I say. They're going to call us a cult leader. They're going to call us a lunatic. I mean, they're going to look at us negatively. Yeah. And, and, and Jesus deserved to be looked at negatively for saying those things if he was merely a man. But what makes those things credible is the fact that he's the incarnate word. He's the word that was with God, that was God in the beginning. And, and so the eternality of Jesus is something that adds credibility to everything else he's going to say in the book of John the eternality of him and he focuses on that he jesus will bring it out over and over again i'm the eternal one just as the father's the eternal one which gives me credence to say the things that i say you have anything else on 15 well because what you just said that, that last phrase because he was in john chapter 8 he's going to really stir the crowd up mm -hmm. twice in that context he's going to say i am in john eight twenty four. except you believe that i am and, and the he there is italicized it's not in the original he says, I am. And mm -hmm. that's going to connect them back to Exodus chapter 3. And then later, of course, they, they start, it, it throws them off so much that they make the statement, we've never been in bondage to any man. You, you don't make that statement logically. It's because their emotions were starting to stir up with them. They're starting to say <laughs> things like that, and they, they don't even think in straight. And, right. then he, and then he really brings the hammer home, if we can use that language respectively, in verse 58. Before Abraham was, I am. And you see the reaction that they had, but, but that connects us right here with what John is emphasizing. When we connect verses 1 through 3 and we look at verse 14 and 15, all that what we're studying in the prologue, it points to the eternality of Jesus, like you said. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. I think every I am statement in Acts chapter 8 is not, some will say the first one was I am the Messiah, I'm the Christ, the one y'all. I don't think that's the case. No. I think I think the I am statement uh, is this, the, all the I am statements by Jesus in Acts chapter 8, or I'm sorry, John chapter 8, are in the same vein as verse 58. I am eternal. I am God. I am, yes, sir, 100%.
So I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, verse 16 to 17, for from this fullness, we all receive, we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What do you have there? The first one is, it's interesting. We look at different translations. You'll find different phrases there toward the end. Uh, grace for grace. I like that grace upon grace. And the way I read that is grace on top of grace. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just an overflow of grace. And when you ask somebody, what does grace mean? They might say unmerited favor. That's a description of what it is, but that's not really a definition. Uh, the definition of grace is the kindness and the love and the mercy of God extended to man. Well, how did he extend those three things? Through Christ. That's grace upon grace, grace on top of grace. Uh, the language here of his fullness have we all received, that we've all benefited from the word becoming flesh. All of humanity has benefited from that because now there is a sacrifice available for you. You know, and someone at the point may not have heard about Jesus, but the sacrifice has already been made for. And I believe that's the point we need to emphasize in our preaching and when we teach people the gospel. The sacrifice has already been made once and for all time. Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, when you study those three chapters, he, he did it and he sat down at the right hand of God. So the blood of Jesus transcends time. It goes backward and forward from the cross. So all people have the opportunity to be saved, and only through Christ is their salvation. And I have this note here in my class notes. Imagine this world without the influence of Jesus. I mean, just imagine. And think of think of what people, I mean, it's, it's a bad place right now in our world, but imagine with, with zero influence, zero grace, how much different, how much worse it would be. But this, this passage in it just kind of connects everything about his fullness. We're starting. John is starting to paint this full picture. We know who he is. He's a hundred percent deity, hundred percent man. John spoke of him, but in a more powerful way. Of verse fifteen, he's before me. That this is deity. This is God in the flesh. Then he says, "All we have received, we've all benefited from this." But the emphasis there in verse sixteen, in my estimation, is that word grace. Grace on top of grace. That's what you have when you look at Jesus. Hundred percent, and I was reading. I had a commentary I was reading, and it took fifteen out of this, uh, and just went fourteen and sixteen because fifteen is that parenthetical statement. Dealt with it later on, but it combined fourteen through sixteen, which is is because that fullness. I just tied that fullness uh, circle, grace upon grace, circled full uh, in at the end of verse fourteen, uh, and just like you said, it, if it it never runs out. And and grace upon grace has that thought that if the first will just for lack of the first bucket of faith runs out, there's another bucket behind it full in 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 all that. So and that's the point that he's he's trying to make. Um not to take away from the fact that there wasn't grace through the law of Moses, uh, but like the Hebrew author makes, man, the, co- the the covenant that Jesus brings is greater, and uh, the the grace of the law of Moses, the grace that was given through Moses, uh, through the law, means nothing without the grace of Jesus. And I think that's what John's making the point here. Uh, same thing the Hebrew author makes is is everything in the Old Testament hinges upon. Jesus, John fourteen, John one and verse fourteen, the Word being made flesh and dwelling among us, and us beholding the the glory of Him, 
everything in the Old Testament hinges on that. You take John 14 out of the equation, nothing that they do in the Old Testament means anything. Right. It's for naught. Uh, but you put Jesus in that equation, and like you said, it trans transcends time. Everything because you you're looking at Jews uh, even at this time. Well, not this time because the, the temple had been destroyed. Uh, but there still was that mindset with Jesus when Jesus was walking near a temple and been destroyed that the law of Moses is what's going to save us. Paul uh, dealt with it in Romans. The Hebrew author had to deal with it in, in the, the Hebrew epistle. Uh, and, and this is, is making the same thing. Hey, everything in the old law hinges upon Jesus. And, and when Jesus calls the scriptures as a witness, uh, Moses, and I like what he says at the end there, uh, of that, of chapter five, when he makes the point that if you really listen to Moses, you'd be listening to me. And if Moses, and implying that if Moses were standing here right now, he'd be standing on this side of the argument, not on your side of the argument. And I think John's alluding to that, uh, that point that he's going to make later on in the chapter, uh, here in verse 17. You have anything else there? Yeah, the law, think about, we'll add Galatians to the mix, Galatians 3.24. It's a schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. So John's making a distinction between what Moses gave and what Jesus gave. Mm -hmm. The law of Christ is better, as you mentioned from the book of Hebrews. Uh, Jesus fully provided grace and truth. Like you said, it's important to say, you know, it's not that the law didn't. And there's some who go to the extreme. You know, the old mm -hmm. law was, was was no grace, and then the new law, there's there's no law. That, no, 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 no. <laughs> There's grace right. and truth in both, but it's fully revealed and fully seen in Christ. But here's something else. This, this is one of those moments. And I mentioned to you what, what, what Brother Walker taught us is study the prologue and read it like you don't know who Jesus is. This is the first time that we read the name Jesus. I find that, take your breath away, honestly. Jesus the Christ, Jesus, the Savior, Christ, the Messiah. Um, this is the first time we've, we've, we've had the Word, the light, the life. This was He of whom I spake. You go through all those different things, but now it's as if it's coming to this fruition here. Grace and truth and love and all these different things. Jesus Christ. Look at Mark's account. Mark doesn't waste any time. Boom. Mark 1.1. 1, 1. But here it's as if John is building up to this name, to this title. And, and that, to me, is so powerful in making that distinction from the law of Moses to now we're, our eyes are fixed on Jesus. That's what mm -hmm. it's about. Oh, that's, that's great. I didn't know, notice that until now, but excellent point. I just circled grace and truth, going back to what we talked about earlier, grace and truth. Uh, there, there's grace that's been extended, but there's something we have to do in order to reach that extended grace. Uh, and so I put Romans 11 verse 22, uh, because the, the world, especially with Jesus, uh, grace and truth came through Jesus. Right? But you don't have any issues convincing most people in the world, uh, especially if they consider themselves religious, uh, about the grace of Jesus. Everyone wants to talk about the grace of Jesus, grace of Jesus, grace of Jesus. And we should. And I'm not, I'm not discounting it. But John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, two occasions in, in verses 14 uh, and 17, and you're going to see it, you know, for example, in John chapter 4, uh, those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Uh, truth keeps coming out. There has to be an understanding that there is a way in which we do things. Grace just doesn't extend to everyone and we can just do whatever we want. 
and the grace of God's going to cover it. There, there, it, it reaches a limit and there's a point in which we have to go. And that's where I've, we, the, the word truth comes in. And I just put Romans 11 verse 22, behold the goodness. There's the grace, goodness and severity. And, and I'll tie severity to truth. Right. Uh, you know, he says, this is how it's supposed to be done. That that's how he expects it to be done. That's the truth. And, and again, worship, uh, and, and, uh, I think it's, um, Cliff Goodwin, who brought out uh, when he's talking to the woman at the well about worship, uh, he he that he says it saves us. Our salvation, our worship is tied to our salvation, and we're to worship God in spirit, right attitude, and in truth, the right way. Uh, same thing with grace. When we come to grace, we have to come to grace the proper way, and we talked about it. Uh, last episode when we talked about baptism, same thing here. God has a way for it to be done, and it's on us. And and just go back to that thought, because he was before me, then I have no right to determine how I reach the grace that he has extended. He is mightier than me. He ranks higher than me. Uh, and therefore, when he extends grace and he tells me through his word that this is the way that I can reach that grace, it is on me to humble myself, put aside my pride, and do it the way God has commanded that it be done. Anything else in those two passages, Drew? Yeah, exactly. What you were saying about grace and truth is a great point because when Jesus comes back, Second Thessalonians one seven through nine, he's coming back in flaming fire, taking vengeance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, he's he's brought grace, he's brought truth, he's brought salvation. When he comes back, he's going to be the judge. Acts seventeen thirty and thirty one reminds us. So think too about the fact that grace teaches us how we are to live. That's Titus 2, 11 and 12. It's it, it right. fear to all men, but it teaches us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So grace and truth both came by Jesus. He's the full picture of both. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and you mentioned Romans eleven twenty two, and that's a great text to put there. It's a ba- we've got to have a balanced view of Jesus. In our world today, religiously, we've made God in our own image instead of the other way around. And that's very right. dangerous. Great point. And, and just to piggyback on that before we move on, Jesus said, in the, uh, I came not to judge. Uh, the point he's making there is, is I came not the first time to judge. I came the first time to save. Like you mentioned, when he returns again, he's, he's going to return as a judge. And he's going to put the, the, the works of each of us, uh, for lack of a better term, before the judge's seat. And we're going to have to give an account. Um, a lot of people right now, because everything at the time of this recording, everything going on in Israel uh, are starting to worry about the end of the world. Um, and, and I don't want to get into the the falsities of that teaching, yeah. but I, but there's a lot of worry in the world right now because they think the world is about to end. Uh, if we're living our lives the way John lived his life, and I'm talking about John the Baptist, humble and submitting to the will of Christ. Uh, judgment day is going to be a great day for each of us. That's a day for which we should look forward uh, to coming because it's the day that we get to, to enter into eternity with God uh, forever. Uh, the only time that the end of this world is terrifying is if we're not prepared. Uh, and I'm, I'm not saying that we should want it to come. I'm sure there are those in all of our lives who have those who are not ready for the day of judgment that we want to be day, ready for the day of judgment. So I'm not saying that we should just sit there and, and hope that it comes tomorrow. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with hoping or, or praying for delay because of, of those situations. 
Uh, but I do think we need to live our lives in a way that that day is going to be a good day for all of us. And so uh, just want to make that point before we move on. Uh, very good. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. What do you have there? It's interesting looking at the different renderings of that. Uh, no man has seen God at any time. You mentioned theophany back in the Old Testament, and I had the same examples. Moses saw in the burning bush, Joshua, Lord of hosts, parents of Samson, saw the messenger of Yahweh. But here we're talking about the spiritual essence. We can't see that in the flesh. Just can't do it. Mm-hmm. No man has seen God at any time. But then you have the only begotten son. And it's troubling to think that there are some who have come to the conclusion that this is only son or unique son. This is the monogenes. This is the son of God. And John is so adamant about emphasizing that throughout the book of John, but throughout all of his writings, sure. So you have the only begotten, the monogenes, which is in the bosom of the Father. That that language is interesting, too. Uh, in the first century context, when they were sitting down to eat or something, someone would recline on someone's chest or close to their heart. And that's the word picture. Uh, the ESV says, who is at the Father's side? The NIV, which I wouldn't recommend as you go to, but it's kind of interesting to look at it. It says, he who is in the closest relationship with the Father. I thought that was pretty powerful. Uh, the only begotten Son who is closer to the Father than than, than anyone else. He has declared him. That word declared means to expound or to make known and explain. One writer said he's the exegesis of God. I thought, man, that's that's powerful. Uh, he's the accurate interpretation of who God is. John 14, mm-hmm. 8 and 9. Philip said, show us the Father, and it suffices us. And Jesus says, you want to see the Father? Look at me. Have I not been with you this whole time? Look at me. Um, the ESV says he has made him known. And I like the New American Standard says he has explained him. So what can we glean from the prologue of John? Jesus is the full explanation of who God is because he's God mm-hmm. in the flesh. Great point. I'm, I'm going to go backwards that he has made him known. I put Colossians 1.15. I put Hebrews 1 and verse uh, 3 as well as John 14 and verse 9. Uh, you can also put, in my opinion, Hebrews 11 and verse 3 when it talks about the things that are seen. Uh, we're not made by invisible things, but the, the, the principle there is that you and I are able to see things in this world and know that the things that we haven't seen God do exist. And I think seeing the life of Jesus, we man was able to see the life of Jesus and know of God. Even though we've never seen God, we experienced God in his true form with our senses, we saw Jesus and that's pretty much that that's how we can do that uh i'll say safely for lack of a better term uh because you know obviously you see you do die who is at the father's side uh, i put the phrase contrast that with verse 10 uh when it, it talks about uh jesus coming into this world uh he was in the world now he's at the father's side and I, the closest that you can be to god uh that's where he's at and uh, the locale to to me is is what's stressed here in both these verses. Uh, and I just want to make the point that when we talk about, for example, First uh, Corinthians twelve thirteen, uh, by the Spirit one is baptized into the body of Christ. Uh, Ephesians chapter one twenty two and twenty three, the body of Christ is the church. 
Uh, and I think there's there's something in, that's from a principle standpoint to be implied here that the locale of Jesus at the side of God, uh, the closest that one is to God, to me illustrates a benefit of the church. Uh, and and um, you mentioned my dad earlier. Um, or, or or throughout, but he used to always say the closest you can get to heaven here on earth uh, is in the church. And I think this statement, who is at the father's side, is, is indicative of that. If we put ourselves in Christ, in his body, uh, then from a, from a spiritual location, uh, you can say that there is a sense where we are uh there because the the church is his body uh, it's his bridegroom and all that and so uh, i like that john makes the distinction between the locales uh especially here in verse 18 uh and then i put um first timothy chapter 1 and verse 17 hebrews chapter 11 verse 27 next to the one no one has ever seen god talking about god being invisible um, and, and so forth. So those are just some, some references to put there. Um, but the only God, um, that is in the middle of this, and I appreciate you made the point that this isn't just the only one, but he's unique in, in all of it. Right. And, and just, a, a the only one like himself, monogonese, I think is an important word to understand, uh, there's no one else like him. No one else has ever walked this earth. Uh, and you can say this about the father and the spirit. No, one, they didn't walk this earth in human form and deistic form at the same time. Uh, and you look at first Corinthians 15, when it starts to talk about, uh, Christ turning over the kingdom and, and, and all that. And just, and you go to first Timothy two, five, uh, there's one mediator, the man, Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a uniqueness there that Jesus has a commonality with humanity. Jesus has a commonality with deity. And he's the only one who has that commonality to, between the both. And and, um, and I think this is a great way to close the prologue because you are putting Jesus the one the, the one of whom Jesus or John is going to talk about for the remainder of this book the unique no one like him and that's what uh what we're about to discuss you have anything else on verse 18 well i just i've got two quotes that i came across in studying this verse to kind of close out the prologue it's almost sad to leave it you almost just want to say camp out right there <laughs> Uh, but Agreed. of course, think about how much more when you when you have a, a good grasp of the prologue, it's going to make the book of John really just full color, if I can put it that way. Mm-hmm. If you're reading it, and I don't mean to, to say this in any kind of way that's diminishing from the text, but it's as if it's black and white, and then you have the prologue, and now it's in color. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, get, you're able to see the full picture even better. And we can recommend this, too, to our listeners. Try reading the book of John, starting in John 1 and verse 19, and then go back and read the prologue after. You can try that. It's a unique way of doing that. I've done that before, and it's pretty amazing to, to go read 21-25. Now, the world itself could not contain it. And then the very next words out of your mouth was, in the beginning was the word. And it's kind of a, a it comes full circle, if you mm-hmm. will. But 
Here are two quotes to close this out. This is from Guy in Woods. Recommend his commentary on the book of John. It's a great, great study. He says, This remarkable portion of the sacred writings is without parallel in all literature, a precious and profound picture of the nature and eternal relations of our blessed Lord. That, that The reason I want to bring that phrase up is that is a bold statement to think of all the literature this world has ever known to say it's without parallel in all literature. But I have to agree with Brother Woods because of how important, how special, what we've just studied in these last three episodes, how important it is that God, the second person of the Godhead, came to this world and took on flesh, died a death for us that we could never, we paid that price we could never pay. We're not redeemed with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. First Peter 1, 18 and 19. The one who always did what pleased his father, John 8, 29. He, he perfectly fulfilled his mission and provides salvation to the world. So, got to agree with Brother Woods there. That there's nothing like this section. There's nothing like this, mm-hmm. not just in the Bible, but in the world of literature. And I think it further illustrates what John said. The world itself cannot contain it. There's nothing in the world like this. And then Brother Waycaster said this. He said, in 18 verses, John has probed the depths of time and eternity and brought to our attention not only the eternality of our Lord, but the magnificence of his incarnation and the purpose for which he came. All who read with a respect for the truth which John here sets forth cannot but bow at the feet of our Father and his Son, and with John, declare the magnificence of our Lord. And I thought both those brothers put that really well and and kind of putting a bow on this, if you will, the prologue, the, the foyer, uh, before you get into the, the, the house, that little walkway that you walk through, is preparing you for this moment when you open the door into the life and into the heart of Jesus. And it's just, uh, this is my favorite section of Scripture, so I'm thankful you allowed me to, to study it with you. No, man, I appreciate you coming on. Um, and I, I don't know any other way, but to, to sum it up, uh, than that. Uh, but I agree. I appreciate you bringing up that wood statement because, uh, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, when you delve into it and we could have spent more, oh, yeah. more time, we probably could have never finished it. Uh, and, and like I mentioned, you know, I studied John in preaching school. Um, then I was teaching it, uh, when I first, it was one of the first classes I started teaching here. Uh, and, and fortunately my elders, uh, the elders here, uh, allowed me ample time i think they gave me eight months which you usually don't you get 13 weeks usually uh so eight months uh we we got into it pretty not as deep as we could but you know deeper than you would in a 13 uh week class uh and then i studied it uh and from a higher education standpoint um and every time something kept coming out coming out coming out then started studying it again to prepare for this just this 18 verses to prepare for that and things start popping out and then you and i are actually conversing in this and things keep popping out and and so and it's 18 verses and you think you have everything in it and then something else like for example just in verse 15 that word because never noticed it before until until studying for it and then because pops out the reason for and so uh i mean that's that's excellent you have anything else yeah, what uh, I'd like to close us out. Yeah, what I'd like to close with are, are the I am statements. 
sign of the book of John because, you know, the prologue is unique, but so are the I am statements. And so, you know, for our listeners at home, if you're liking to uh, mark in your Bible, write in your Bible, the key words in the prologue that we've already studied, word, life, light, glory, grace, truth. Think of those words. And I just want to read the I am statements and give the verse reference so everybody can have them. But think of what John just talked about in the prologue. And then what happens when Jesus makes the statement? John 6:35, I am the bread of life. John 8:12, I am the light of the world. John 10:7, I am the door. John 10:11 and 14, I am the good shepherd. John 11:25, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14:6, I am the way, the truth and the life. And then John 15:1 as well as verse 5, I am the true vine. All of those things that we just studied from the prologue, they're all brought out in those I am statements. And Jesus is the only one can make those statements and back it up with 100% certainty. And he's the one, he's the only one that can save us and give us the hope of eternal life. Man, that's great. And that is a great way to close out this episode, great way to close out this study. Uh, Drew, thanks again for the time. I know there's a lot of time that goes into preparing this and a lot of time that we we spent just recording this and and that's time out of your day that you've dedicated and i appreciate that uh you did a wonderful job um and i really do appreciate you uh mentioning uh mentioning dad there because uh you know you were spoken highly of him uh, and you did not disappoint you lived up to all the the expectations that that he put forth so with that thank you guys for watching uh and, and thank you guys for the support like share subscribe And until next time, uh, thank you. We're out.